Well, good morning. Uh, if you want to turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, if you're using the Bibles that are placed under the chairs, it'll page 987. And that will be, for me, that will be the conclusion of, of a series that I've been going through since uh, Sunday, December 29th of 2019, and how the world has changed since then. Uh, when I began that series on this uh, first letter of Paul to the Thessalonians, had no idea just how long it would take to preach through this. I never know when the opportunity will arise for me to do this. But I knew that it would give me something to be working through, and I try to always have something going uh, just in case I have the opportunity at the last minute. So anyway, a little more prepared this time. But, uh, but today, as I said, I will finish this letter. Two years ago, I shared one of my favorite New Year's stories, resolution stories, and it was about a lady who early in the year announced that her New Year's resolution was to lose 10 pounds. And now that the year was about over, she sadly announced she had 15 pounds to go. But years ago, I finally found a New Year's resolution that I could keep. I resolved to not make any New Year's resolutions, and that one I've been successful at. So since it's taken me two years to get to this point in this letter, I believe it's some review is necessary. Uh, Luke recalls or records uh, Paul's missionary work in the 17th chapter of Acts. And Paul, as was his custom, was request, as was his custom, and at the request of the Jewish leaders, uh, taught at the, for three consecutive, I get my tongue untied here, taught for three consecutive Sabbaths in the synagogue. There he, as Luke records, reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer, to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Some Jews believed, and there were many of the devout Greeks who were dissatisfied with pagan worship, and they were seeking something different, and they found that in the one true God and had become Jewish proselytes. And so they also were convinced. And then there were some leading women of the city who also were in attendance, and they responded affirmatively to the gospel. But that was not well received by the Jewish leaders, and they were jealous of Paul's conversions. So they incited the rabble to bring up a crowd and go into Jason's home, hoping to find Paul and the missionaries and bring them out into the public square before the uh, officials. When that failed, they took Jason and his other believers, other brothers with him and forced them to make a peace bond so that would be over with. Under the cover of darkness, the missionary team left Thessalonica and traveled to Berea and there in Berea Paul again went into the synagogue and again reasoned with the Jews and Luke records that the Berean Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica they received the word with all eagerness examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so but when the Jews in Thessalonica heard that the word was being proclaimed in Berea they traveled there and again incited some discontent and forced Paul to leave the city. He alone left and went to, uh, excuse me, went to Athens, but Paul, but Silas and Timothy remained for a time in Berea. 
Eventually, they were joined together. Paul was missing this young church that he just spent such a short period of time with. And he was very concerned that with the temptation of being drawn back into idol worship or Judaism, as well as the persecution, would these believers be able to sustain what they had come to faith in? And so he sent Timothy back. And he wanted Timothy to encourage this church, to further instruct this church, and then to return to him and bring him a report on what was going on in Thessalonica among this young church. And that's what this first letter is dealing with. And I'm not going to go, I actually I thought about reading the whole thing, but that was going to take too long. So I'm just going to give you about a one minute summary of the first three chapters of First Thessalonians. And that is, Paul starts out by commending the new believers for their transformed lives. They turn from idol worship to the worship of the one true God. This transformation occurred because of the powerful way the gospel, which Paul note was the word of God and not of man, but the powerful way the gospel was embraced by them. Not only were their lives transformed as evidenced by their work of faith, labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, chapter 1, verse 3. They were also remaining faithful despite the persecutions that they were experiencing. And then Paul also commended them for sharing the gospel throughout Macedonia and Achaia, the region they were in. In chapter 4, the first 12 verses, Paul writes about the necessity of sanctification for believers. It was important to keep striving to more be to more to be more Christ-like. This morning we're going to be considering chapter 4, 13 through 511. I'm not going to spend much time on chapter uh, the remaining part of chapter 4 because I covered that in a previous message. But I do want to talk a little bit about what occurred there. But anyway, that's that deals with the rapture and the second coming. So Let's just briefly look at the, what I talked about concerning the rapture. The rapture can be, those views can be divided into two main camps. One is the pre and the other is the post. The pre-rapture view can refer either to the tribulation, pre-tribulation, the millennium, of the, or the wrath, also known as a mid-tribulation. And all three put, the, put forth an argument that the church and believers will be taken away prior to the judgment we read of in Revelation. And they often call the absence of the cite the absence of the church or believers when John writes about the tribulation and judgment of the earth. This position requires Jesus to come back twice, once a secret time to rapture the church and a second time after the seven years to reign over the millennium. Post has only a second coming of Christ at the end of the seven years of the tribulation. And those who endorse the post view see 1 Thessalonians 4.17 as a resurrection of the believers who have died before the return of Christ and has nothing to say about the removal of the church prior to or during the tribulation. They say Paul is saying that both those who have died as well as those who are still living will be caught up with Jesus at this second coming. And I mentioned this before. I think it's worth mentioning again. I believe it is unfortunate when a church requires you to make the acceptance of a rapture viewpoint as a condition of membership. I see the rapture is vitally important. It's in scripture. Paul writes about it. 
but in no way does it compare to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our church, in its statement of belief, states, we believe the next great event of human history will be the personal return of Jesus Christ. This is the blessed hope for which all those who love Christ yearn. While the exact time of Christ's return is unknown, it is imminent and certain. And I like the words Mike, Mark Howe writes when he says, when one, where one lands on his timing of the rapture is not a test of fellowship. For every argument in favor of placing the rapture before the day of the Lord, there are arguments against it. One truth is not up for debate, however. Jesus is coming again. The church must live in eager expectation of this event. Trials and tribulations will be a part of your journey while you wait expectantly for him. Well, in 413 through 511, Paul answers two questions. And the first one I dealt with in my previous message, and that was the rapture. And today we're going to be looking at, I'm going to begin by looking at chapter 5, verse 11. And it's easier for me to read it through my, from my Bible than to my notes because I got gibbered up. But anyway, hear now the word of the Lord from chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, the first 11 verses. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for, the day, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light, children of the day, we are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up as you are doing. So the question we're concerned with today is Christ's return, and that will be what we have to look at. Paul begins by admonishing them, now concerning the time and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. Paul said he'd already taught them about the day of the Lord while in Thessalonica and reminded them of what they had learned. The first century church eagerly looked for the imminent return of Christ. Knowing a specific time would help them deal with the persecution that they were experiencing. I want to share just a couple of things about uh, predicting the coming of Christ. Former Nassau engineer Edward G. Wisnett wrote a book, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. And that book sold over 4 million copies. 
He appeared on TBN, and they set aside a time just for him. But he predicted Jesus would return during the Jewish holiday of Rosh Hashanah on September 11th through the 13th. When that did not occur, he predicted a date in 1989, then 1993, and 1994. Then I guess he gave up. More recently, Harold Camping, the then president of the family radio network that was based in California and had quite a following, he also was an engineer. He believed there was a numerical code in the Bible which could be used to discover the second coming. He invested nearly $5 million to publicize May 21, 2011 as that day. But both he and Wisden had ardent followers who took very seriously these predictions, some selling all their possessions to be prepared. So this, there's been an interest, obviously, in this second coming. But Paul reminds us, you don't need to know the times and seasons. I'm going to share something personal. I, I, I may have shared this with a couple of you before. Uh, it, it's... It's an event that happened back in 1991, and it's one that I relive several times since it happened. It was the morning after the first Gulf War had started that night before, and I was at work. I worked at the Charleston Elevator at that time. I was back in my part of the office, and one of our customers came in and walked straight back to where I, to the doorway of my office, and, and I can remember... To this, to this day, what he said. He said, and I can quote it exactly, he says, I have one question. Is this the beginning of the end? I'll have to say I was surprised by that question. First, he'd never shown any interest in anything what I would consider to be spiritual. In fact, just the opposite. And secondly, that he thought current, uh, that a current event like this might be the start of the end times. I paused for a moment and gave him a truthful answer. No, I don't think this is the beginning of the end. Thank you, he said. That's all I wanted to know. Turned around and walked out and purposely avoided coming into the office for the next few weeks. Since then, I attempted to have conversations with him about the God, man, and sin question. And he rebuffed every one of those. He told me, he said, I have no interest in God or interest in church. I just don't want to go to hell. And he was adamant about that. Unfortunately, he died earlier this year. And tragically, I don't think he ever changed his mind. The day of the Lord is what we're looking at today. The day of the Lord. In the Old Testament times, it was thought of by the Jews that it was the day when God would come and bring judgment upon their enemies, the heathen nations that surrounded them. They apparently ignored what Amos wrote in, in 5.18 when he said, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. It was to be a judgment against the nation of Israel. Some examples of the day of the Lord. In Genesis 11, God pronounced a judgment on the people of Babel and confused the language because of their pride. 
Also, the day of the Lord came to the northern and southern kingdoms when God pronounced a judgment upon those peoples for their hardened hearts and rebellion against him. But when we look at the New Testament, the reference to the day of the Lord, the emphasis is on Christ and the Father with judgment directed not on nations, but on the individual. It will be a day that's still in the future. It's one referred to in the book of Revelation. And you can read about that. It's interesting to read about the events that will transpire on that day. Well, let's look a little more in depth at that. First, Paul says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. The problem with a thief in the night is that you don't know he's coming. The thief doesn't call and say, hey, I'm coming to rob you tonight. You are taken by surprise. And again, that element of surprise is only heightened if it happens at night. Paul writes in verse 3, While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them. So much the same way you think that your house is secure and all is well, and the thief shows up. Well, the language of peace and security, we need to be careful. Because as you read through the book of Acts, you encounter Christians being charged with violating the Pax Romana, or the peace of Rome, by claiming to follow a different king, King Jesus, instead of Caesar. The Christians were saying to that claim that Caesar had brought peace and had brought a false peace and security. They said that the peace of Rome was not one that was true. The only true peace could be found in the gospel. In other words, we cannot bank our hope on peace that comes from the kingdom of this world. If you study the events leading up to World War II, you get insight into all the attempts that were made to prevent a second world war, and yet they all failed. James Grant writes in his commentary on this scripture, many Christians in the United States of America are deceived into thinking that they have peace and security because our country has a strong military and powerful resources, but they are deceived. These things can be idols, and we dare not find our peace in the strength of a country or a kingdom because the kingdoms of this world are nothing before the Lord. Sudden destruction will come upon us if we bank our hope on the kingdoms of this world. So do not let the current peace and security deceive you. Again, those can be gone in an instant. Our second illustration found in verse 3 says, Sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. The point of this illustration is to emphasize the suddenness of Christ's coming. When labor pains happen, there's a certain degree of surprise. Sure, a pregnant woman knows she's pregnant, but she knows, and she knows labor is coming. She's just not sure precisely when that's going to happen. So it will be with the coming of the Lord. John Stott explains, so putting the two metaphors together, we, ha we have to say that Christ's coming is, will be one, sudden and unexpected, like a thief in the night. And two, sudden and unavoidable, unavoidable, like the labor at the end of pregnancy. So both are sudden, one unexpected, one unavoidable. Well, Paul has a solution to this in verses 4 through 8 of chapter 5. 
But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Be alert. Paul is using some startling contrasts here. Light and darkness, day and night, sober and drunkenness, awake and not sleeping. Paul also is using the armor of, to highlight the crucial virtue of the Christian life, faith hope, and love. Again, Paul is saying, be alert. Well, on the second coming of Christ, the Christian attitude towards the day of the Lord ought always to be one of expected, excited expectation. Anthony Hopka explains, the believer should live in constant, joyful expectation of Christ's return. Though he does not know the exact time of it, he should always be ready for it. In the second to last verse of the entire Bible, Jesus declared himself, Surely I am coming soon. The expectant believer answers, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Well, with judgment that will occur occur on that day, there will also be the Lord's wrath. Leon Morris, writing on verses 9 and 10, writes this, one of the things that gave salvation so full of meaning to New Testament Christians was that they were sure of the wrath of God and knew that Christ had had rescued them from a terrible fate. In modern days, men are often prone to take Christianity lightly because they have emptied the wrath of its content. To remove the wrath of God from the scene is to rob life of a good deal of its serious purpose. I think I've mentioned this before. Uh, My knowledge of the Marvel Avengers movie series is limited to uh, our grandson, our Arizona grandson, Ethan. Uh, He usually has, has me spend some time with him watching those movies. And of course, to do that, he has to explain to me what's going on, what's happened before, and what to expect. Uh, but I, I enjoyed it partially because I was with him and the movies are exciting to watch and about the time you think there is no hope then somehow they create a way to right the wrong and tri- good triumphs over evil. And that is until I went to watch Avengers Infinity War. And if you've watched in the Avengers series you maybe are familiar with that movie. Thanos, and I may not be pronouncing his name correctly, but he's the villain. And he's seeking to collect all six of the Affinity Stones and then eliminate half of the universe's population. And as I watched the movie, I began to wonder how the Avengers were going to pull this out and stop Thanos and save the universe. Well, Thanos was able to accomplish his mission. He snaps his fingers and poof! People begin disappearing, and the movie ends. The credits start to roll. People start to get up and leave the theater. I'm sitting there thinking, what? This can't be over. This can't be the end. The bad guy cannot win. 
Now, I'm accustomed to going to movies. The good always triumphs over the evil. The white-hatted good guys always defeat the black-hatted bad guys. It wasn't right. It wasn't fair. And I expressed my disappointment to Ethan. I said, how could they end a movie this way? The bad guy won. He kind of condescendingly assured me that this wasn't the end, just the end of that movie, because he knew what would happen next. And he made sure that I was able to watch the next one, Avengers Endgame, where Thanos' work is undone and he is defeated, which creates other problems for other in the series to be anyway. But anyway, the point was, I was somewhat comforted to be assured by someone who knew that good would eventually triumph over evil. Well, we often speak of God's love, but we've often, we think about it, but we don't speak about God's justice being meted out to those who deserve it. That was a Jewish perspective of the day of the Lord, was that God would avenge all of the things that had been done to them by the other nations, and their enemies would be treated in righteous judgment. I want to come back to verse 9 and 10 in a moment, but I want to continue. I'm not going to make any real comments on the rest of chapter 5, um, but I do, want, I do want to cover it, at least read through it. I'll begin with verse 11 and then continue. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and who are over you in the Lord, and admonish you, and esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encouraging the, the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays, repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another, to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless in the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So let's talk about the wrath of God. God's wrath, one of the definitions I found says, God's wrath in perfect harmony with all of his divine attributes is a holy action of retribute, easy for me to say, retributive justice towards persons whose actions deserve eternal combination. Let me just shorten that down. God's wrath is action towards people who deserve eternal condemnation. That is the status of everyone seated here today. That is the status of everyone outside these walls. We deserve condemnation. 
And that is the day of the, ju- the, day of the Lord will be a day of judgment. And the wrath is the wrath of, re- of tribulation can be attributed either to that final judgment or to the judgment we incur when we pass from this life. But that wrath has been spared us. Verse 9 and 10. For God has not delivered a destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with them. So for us, the wrath is nothing to be feared, but it is a concern for the rest of the world. And Mark Howell, writing about the Thessalonians' concern about times and seasons, says, God never intended for you to know when Christ is coming. He always intended for you to know that Christ is coming. The Bible does not give dates and times. It gives a promise. Christ is coming. Do you want to escape the coming wrath of the Lord? Receive the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ. And these next comments, I've been working, I can't get them fleshed out right, and I'm hopeful that maybe Pastors Mike or Jared sometime can communicate them more clearly, but... At a much younger age, I re- heard a lot of preaching that focused upon the threat of hell for non-believers. And, per- and while perhaps their intention was good to, to communicate a false message, that if you just sign a card, say a prayer, walk an aisle, you are excused from hell. And I'm not saying that to not want to go to hell is not a good thing. But if that's the purpose for your believing in Christ is to only escape God's wrath and punishment, you are completely missing the point. To become a believer, to become a child of the kingdom of God, to have God as your father is the most precious thing you can ever have. It's a relationship that just continues to grow. You benefit immensely as you receive the blessings that God has for you. A transformed life means you totally different view life differently. You have a different outlook. Your desire is not for the things of this world. Your desire is to do things that please God. Your desire is to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Your desire is to be a Christ-like presence where God has placed you. Do not worry about the wrath of God. Do not worry about the day of the Lord. Do not fear those. Because you have been saved through the work of Christ. And that is good news. Let's pray. Father God, as, as I draw to a close this letter that Paul wrote to the Thessalonian church, Reminded that he has many very positive things to believers as they trans- as their transformed lives were evident that the gospel had radically changed them, not only in how they interacted with people around them, but in their walk with you. Father, through this we are comforted to know that no matter the trials and tribulations, the persecutions, 
that we may encounter, you are faithful to us. And whether that day of the Lord comes while we yet live or after we sleep, we are comforted again in knowing that we will be spending an eternity with you and we will enjoy you in your presence forever. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.